Hello and welcome to the second week of our new quarter of the encounter. So last week was set up with the uh, Emmaus Road story. And the reason why that story was picked is because it brings out the fact that Christ is present everywhere uh, in creation. And so that's that. Now we switch over in the narrative lectionary to another story in Genesis about the creation. And uh, Reverend Derek Jacks uh, has a, um, a good lesson here. Again, uh, the discussion questions are going to be key in this quarter, uh, but it's going to be September 12th, Genesis 1, uh, and our prayer for illumination. Creator God, as you called forth light out of darkness in the moment of creation, bring light to the darkness of our minds that we might hear and understand your word today. Amen. And then our memory verse is one or Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind and the, in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Genesis one twenty seven. All right. So um, first, let me say that we have a typo. Uh, it's supposed to be the Bible Project's video about creation. Uh, the link is correct, but uh, I did not get the um, video uh, perfect there. Uh, so forgive me about that. Um, so, um, what is the creation story, right? Um, this is, for whatever reason, since, you know, modern times, uh, been a tough one for the church. You have within the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, uh, people who believe in what's a young earth and a six-day creation, and then you have people who uh, believe in um, a theistic evolution, which... Um, has been a Presbyterian stance, at least since um, the early days of America. Um, some people you might not think uh, of theistic evolution or theistic evolution as some of the uh, evangelistic Presbyterians uh, back in the Great Awakening were, uh, were theistic evolutionists. Uh, so anyway, that's that. Uh, what I like to bring up is there's a, there's a term, terminology in literature called myth. And so myth is sometimes used as a bad word in pop circles uh, because myth is associated with lie. Uh, but that's not how the technical term or the scholarly term is used. Myth is a story which gives meaning and purpose uh, to existence, to your reality, um, whether it's true, factual, well, historically or not. So uh, you might read myths. Uh, like African-American tribe myths or Native American tribe myths, or even, you know, in the creation story in Genesis would be considered a myth so far as liter literarily speaking, right? Because it gives purpose and meaning in a story. It's who we are, where we come from, how we went wrong, how do we get back to where we should be? These are elements of myth. Um, and again, they can be completely true and they might not be in so far as the actual historical facts, right? So anyway, um, we look at the Genesis story with trying to bring some science that wasn't invented when Moses was writing. Um, I think what we can do is to read this text faithfully we can at the very least agree that the purpose was to show who God is, what creation is, who human beings are, and it gives us our role in creation. This story, however you want to think about it, 
in terms of time or development or anything like that doesn't change the fact that it seeks to answer those questions. And that matters because no matter where you come from, you're trying to figure out who God is, what this creation is about, why are we here, and how do we live faithfully in the world, right? That's that's really the purpose of the creation story. And, you know, there can be debates on whatever aspect of it you want to, but if you don't if you don't get at least those questions answered, then it's not a very good creation story. Anyway, it's a foundation for religious life, right? So in here, in page 10, I think it's page 10, uh, Reverend Derek brings up uh, four revelations of Genesis 1. It's that God is sovereign. God is in relationship. There's God's law, which means order. And ultimately, it's a story about redemption or the way things should be, what we're seeking, right? So if you want to think about it this way, when Moses was writing this, the way God is portrayed in Genesis is he is the sovereign of all creation. In other words, there is no such thing as human sovereignty, nor is there any other God except for Jehovah God that Moses is writing about. So that's the first thing we learn uh, that Reverend Derek wants us to know, that the purpose of this is saying that God is the power and the creative force behind the universe. All right, then you bring that down, that this creative power or this authoritative figure in the universe doesn't have to stay that, that unknown power. God doesn't have to be uh, this presence who created something and then leaves the world alone. But instead, the creation story shows a God who creates all these things and then condescends, if you will, to the special creation of humanity so that God and humanity can be in fellowship. And then also we see that fellowship was made to complement, or humans were made to complement one another. So you have that very crucial part of male and female were created in the image of God. In the image of God, God created male and female. So there's this sense in which humans are in fellowship just as much as God and humans are in fellowship. And then we create we, we fill the world with God's glory in creation. When you think about God's laws, in other words, God has made a certain order of things, and that is opposed to human order or human law, if you will, or human chaos. God brings order and purpose and meaning to the creation that humans have always tried to do. Think of, you know, the Tower of Babel or whatever, human governments, authorities, whatnot. But God is always, uh, it's his law. And it's him bringing purpose, meaning to this creation that God has created. And then it lets us know how we're supposed to live. The creation story says that God set Adam and Eve or the humans in the garden and that they had certain responsibilities. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, subdue the earth and rule over it. And, uh, you know, these are some of the things that we were commanded to do. So. There's a certain way or redemption. This is what redemption looks like. We get back to that as opposed to maybe a human understanding of utopia or how people are supposed to work together without the thought of this God who has condescended and revealed God's self to us. So anyway, that's how we um, that's how we understand the book of Genesis. Again, you can think about 
evolution, or you can think about a six day creation. You can think about uh, how old the earth is. It doesn't really matter because those are the things that you need to get from the creation story. And that's why we call it a myth or, you know, a lot of people will call it a myth. Not, it's not nobody saying whether it's true or false. It's just saying it's answering those questions that we just talked about. So um, that's our introduction. Next, in the Exploring the Scripture, uh, Reverend Derek brings up a really cool way of thinking about how it also, like a really good, what is it in a sermon? There's an old joke about, uh, I think it was John Broadus maybe, who said, a good sermon is when you tell people what you're going to tell them, you tell them, then you tell them again, and you end by reminding people what you told them, right? And in some sense, Genesis becomes a, a blueprint by which God is then going to work through uh, the rest of the narrative and how God is going to redeem people and bring people back to this image of the Garden of Eden with perfect fellowship and with between God and humans and human to human. God has created. God has authority in Scripture. And the primary mode of knowledge then in this world is revelation, not a human search for the knowledge of God. So God in this creation story, again, is revealing how God is going to work through the creation, through our lives, and how God will ultimately redeem us and bring us back to God. So that's important. What you see in Genesis chapter three is a human search for knowledge and for wisdom and revelation. So when God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what they do. And that becomes then a symbol of how all of creation has acted since. And so when you um, understand creation and God from creation, you understand that revelation is where we get knowledge or the fear of God who gives a revealed wisdom is the beginning of knowledge. It's not this fruit or seeking of ourselves. So this is a fundamentally different way of seeking wisdom than the world would tell you to seek wisdom. We say that wisdom is revealed and you gain it through fearing God and learning from God, whereas human authority, human government, human power, a life or a society against the knowledge of God would say that we search from the ground up. And that's not how it goes <laughs> with, with, uh, with Christianity. Obviously, we can learn more about God, but ultimately the only way we know God or our purposes or whatever is it's revealed from God. That's an important thing to bring up, I think, in your Sunday school class. And some of you might not agree with me with that, but that's the purpose of this creation story, that God is the one in charge. God reveals through spoken word, uh, through Jesus Christ, through the scriptures, what it takes for us or what God intends for us to know about living in light of God's sovereignty in this creation. All right. Um, so then I wanted to bring up the discussion questions on um, page 12. What does it mean to you that you are a created being? And I think it leads to what we were just saying. Uh, when we create something, we have or think we have some control over it, right? So if we create a painting, we, we can give it to somebody, not give it to somebody. We have control over it. And so as created beings, we are controlled or we are under the authority of the creator. You might remember in Romans 9 or 10, whatever it is, where uh, Paul is having this theoretical argument about the sovereignty of God, and um, he ends, well, in his argument, he says something along the lines of, who are you 
oh clay to say to the potter why did you make me this way all right so that's one of the things that it means to be created is that we are not of our own sovereign of our own lives nor can we say what's right and wrong but instead we have to look back toward revelation that god has condescended to give to us um the next question then would be how does being created in the image and likeness of god affect the affect your image of yourself man in a world that is starving for proper self recognition or self pride or self awareness self appreciation, you know, self-appreciation, um, like humanity tends to go on two ways, at least in our Western culture, you either hate yourself and think you can do no good or the other end of it is you think you're God, but being the fact that we're made in the image of God means that we have dignity and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. We are God's reflection and that makes us valuable one way or the other. When anybody else treats you bad, you know that you belong to God, created in the image of God. And this is healthy self-esteem right here. I'm a child of God. Uh, there's a joke that I say that I won't say here, but when somebody talks bad to me, I'm a child of God, right? Like when I think the worst of myself, I'm still redeemed and I'm still created in the image of God. God loves me because I am created in God's image and that I have been created by God. So that's that. Again, ask your Sunday school classes these things. This is important. These are really important foundational things and affects everything that you think about, how you think about things. And then the third question is, uh, what are some of the responsibilities of being created in the image of God? Right. So I call this a delegated responsibility. When you think of ourselves as humans, the abilities and gifts in which God gives us, uh, then we reflect God to creation. And I forgot who the theologian was but it's almost like let me get it here is as if we are a we are a tilted mirror in which god through us gives us his image and we reflect it to creation but then at the same time as the image of god we are reflectors of praise back to god so the things that we do and that humans do in the world reflect and that image back to god in praise right so Humanity is a, I don't know how to do this. This is hard. It is a tilted mirror. God shines, we shine back up to God. That's how that works. And I think that's a really good way of understanding who we are as humans. Another way of thinking about this is that God has delegated us to be prophet, prophets, priests, and kings slash queens of creation. As prophets, we speak forth the truth of God to the world. So when something bad is happening in the world, if the world climate uh, you know, issues. If humans are tearing the world up or misusing the things which God has created, we as prophets of God call forth truth and say, you can't treat creation this way. But the same is true with our people. So like in the Old Testament, the prophets often spoke about the injustices of the poor and trampling and, and the oppression that happens among people. We are the people of God and we stand up and we say, you cannot treat people this way. You cannot treat the image of God this way. You cannot do it. So we stand and we prophesy in that sense. We're priests because we reflect praise back up to God. That's that tilted mirror thing, if you want to. The way we work, the way we act, the way we make creation work for the most amount of people, it brings praise to God. And we're also, if you will, we're choir directors in our lives. We reach out to people and we we invite people to become worshipers of God and we train ourselves how to worship and 
and we offer ourselves as a sacrifice. These are all priestly duties. In the Garden of Eden, uh, those responsibilities and the things that they were they were put in the garden to tend and work the garden. It's the same phrase uh, when the temple was created uh, that the priests were to tend and work the temple, right? So the priests have the same responsibility as Adam and Eve back in the garden. And that's, but except the whole world uh, is God's temple, obviously, right? Uh, and then kings and queens, we have dominion over this earth. Uh, sad but true, like God, we can use our words to create good things or we can tear down things. We can misuse creation or we can make sure that it's used right. And so in that sense, we have dominion over the earth. Uh, we, we have dominion in a way that other species on this earth do not have. Uh, and that, again, is in those five commandments in Genesis, which you can read about. All right, so that leads us then to the digging deeper section. This is a really cool section to where uh, basically Reverend Derek is saying that the first or the creation story itself has become a blueprint to know who Jesus is and how Jesus is going to be the redeemer of the world and how we should think about Jesus, uh, which is, you know, actually not, not a bad thought uh, when you think about it. Um, so anyway, um, so this is Reverend Derek suggests this is a framework or paradigm um, by connecting God's creation with the redemptive or recreating activity of Jesus Christ. So again, I've said this kind of in passing, but the tabernacle and the temple uh, were recreations of the Garden of Eden. If you read through the symbols and uh, the way things were made in the temple, you'll see that it is even the entrance, right? So unlike any other culture in the Middle East of that time, uh, the, all the other cultures would bow to the east to worship, but not Jews. Jews would go to the west. And so uh, the Adam and Eve were banished east. And so they would come from east to west to get back into the temple. And so you'll see the temple doors or the tabernacle doors. You always came from the east to the west instead of vice versa. And so anyway, but this is this calling back to creation is what the temple, the their tabernacle, the temple, and ultimately we are doing as Christians. We are trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, so anyway, you can do a little study on that. Um, it's a good study. Uh, and a lot of times older churches, basilicas, you know, they're built in the sense in which you're coming from the world back to the Holy of Holies. And so anyway, architecture is important, my friends. Um, all right. So everything points back to that original uh, Garden of Eden and the Sabbath which is important too. We'll get to that, but everything gets back, you know, all six days of creation and the seventh day was a rest of Sabbath. That was supposed to be uh, the crowning achievement where God and humanity were in true fellowship and, and we, we had everything right. And so then Jesus then becomes in the new Testament, like he stands in the temple and says, you know, tear this temple in three days, it, it will rise, you know, I'll rebuild this temple. And so Jesus takes that imagery of the temple, which is, again, the imagery of the Garden of Eden. And uh, he becomes the chief cornerstone of a bigger temple in which we're all a part of. So um, so anyway, you can look through that. Uh, in day one, God said, let there be light. Jesus Christ is the light. Uh, day two, let there be an expanse and separate the waters. Jesus is the water of life. Day three, God gathers the kiak chaotic waters and separates them from land and provides vegetation. Uh, Jesus calms the chaotic waters during the storm. And Jesus is, of course, the vine, right? Day four, God creates night and day. 
puts them in their place in Matthew chapter two, the Magi lead the stars, lead the Magi to Jesus. Uh, day five, God fills the water and sky with creatures. Think about how Jesus fills the nets of the disciples. In day six, God creates animals and humans. And in Mark one and two, Jesus is in the wilderness uh, and he heals those people uh, in in the gospels and restores them to life. Right. And then uh, day seven, God rested on the Sabbath, invited people to um, fellowship with him. And of course, you all know, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come unto me, all you are weak and heavy laden. I will for my <clears throat> I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden light. So anyway, uh, and then it's all connected in John's gospel when uh, John 1, 1 through 5, where he says, where the scripture says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. So we're connecting uh, God with, or Jesus Christ with the working of God, right? Um, so anyway, the discussion question is, many people engage nature as a spiritual discipline. Do you feel connected with God when you spend time in creation? What do you think of when you're enjoying moments, um, when you're enjoying moments in God's creation? Um, so nature, I think being in nature is obviously a spiritual discipline because God created these things. And in God, uh, we uh, really reflect on the nature of God, mountains, majesty, peaceful rivers. I've got peace like a river, right? I mean, uh, nature often shows attributes of God. Uh, I will say this. Uh, let me see one thing here. Before I move on. All right. Um, so anyway, I would say ask the class how they use nature to connect with God. If they do, why, why not? What is it that they feel? Why is it that nature connects them with God? These kinds of things. All right. That leads us to... Uh, Oh, well, I'll say it. Uh, I, I don't know if it's in here, but like to answer that question, John Calvin has this really cool quote. And he said, there's not one blade of grass nor color in this world that is not intended to make people rejoice. And so create, you know, the, the created world does lead us to know a little bit more about God and that God loves us and gives us these great things. All right. Sorry. Now we'll go on to the learning from the scripture section. Uh, all right. So what Derek does here is to Think about the working of the Trinity in creation. So early in the Genesis passage, you, you see that the spirit of God is hovering and then that God speaks forth like let there be light. And then in John chapter one, we we understand that that word is is Jesus Christ. And so you have this Trinitarian understanding of the creation and they all work together. This one Trinity works together for the for creation. And, and to bring glory uh, to the Trinity itself, if you will. Uh, so the discussion question for that, uh, so is um, many people, oh, sorry, not many people. It's uh, how does the Holy Trinity serve as a model of unity for the church today? Does your church recite creeds in the worship service? If so, which ones? So um, how does the Trinity serve as a model for the unity of the church? First, that we are one, but we have our separate 
acts and responsibilities, right? Like Episcopalians, if you want to think at it, about it at a denominational level, Carmel Presbyterians, Presbyterians, Methodists, so on and so forth. We all have our distinctives and that's okay, but we're not pitting against one another. But uh, just as the body is one, so all these parts are one. And then if you bring it down to just the individual level, you're not your own. You're, you're not an individual. You're part of a body that God has created at your local church. And so you work together for the good of that church and for the glory of God. So what, like Paul says in Corinthians, whatever gift God has given you, you use that, right? Don't, uh, don't shirk your responsibility. Everybody has a role. Nobody has an inferior role. Nobody has a role that's higher than another, but everybody has a role. And then as individuals, then we use that role for the glory of God. And then Derek asked about the, reciting creeds in the worship service. So some of us, uh, some of our churches uh, use creeds, some don't. We're, we as Carmelin Presbyterians are what we call a confessional church. Um, and so what that means is, is that um, we have a confession that we judge orthodoxy, right? It's not personal experience, um, but instead we have a confession that we put together. Uh, and when someone becomes a member of the Carmelo Presbyterian Church or whatnot, uh, they adhere to the confession of faith that we have, right? So in other words, somebody can't just have this feeling in their spirit that goes against the confession or orthodoxy, if you will, the creed, uh, and say, well, you know, obviously I'm right because I've experienced it or I've felt it. And some churches have that, but we're not one of them. We're confessional churches. We, we're churches that and do have creeds, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and that forces us, in a sense, to work as the body. These confessions and creeds are shared, at least lots of them, with the wider ecumenical body, but it's how we work. It's kind of the framework by which we work. It's We know our role through these confessions and creeds and so on and so forth. All right, so let's get through here to the Applying the Scripture section. And that is, um, you know, Reverend Derek brings up the fact that we're in the same boat as Adam and Eve. We've been banished from God because we have sought in our own way, shape or form. We all like sheep have gone astray. One of the old Protestant um, prayers of confession says, but we've fallen short of God and we need a bridge. We need to get back into fellowship with God. Right. So um, although we're separated from God. And we live in a cursed world where nothing feels fruitful. We experience natural disasters. This has been a terrible week. We pray for all those folks um, who have been affected by floods and hurricanes and, and, and so on and so forth. It's been terrible. This is the world we live in after the fall. Um, but it's also, you know, we work with the sweat of our brow and we bring forth fruit only with the deepest efforts. It wasn't like that in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and then we're also uh, not only broken in our fellowship with God. We're broken in our fellowship with human beings. Um, you know, we're tribalist now. We don't find common uh, humanity within our faith or within being created in the image of God. Instead, we, we break off into groups based on skin colors or creeds or whatever it may be. Uh, it's very tough. But even at the beginning in Genesis 3.15, we read that you know, proto-evangelism or that promise of the good news that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? And so it's important then 
that we see that in Genesis, maybe, you know, even at the beginning, God was going to bring us back into fellowship uh, with God's self. And so anyway, the discussion questions, God fills the void, order, God fills the void, orders the chaos, gives relationship to the lonely, separates light from darkness, etc. in the creation story. We see he has done this by his word that was spoken. What promises has he made to us today to sustain us during times of chaos, void, loneliness, and darkness? Um, obviously, we have scripture. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church family. We have all these um, tools availed to us, prayer, meditation, in which we can connect with God. And he can recreate us in this sense. He can bring light to darkness. He can separate uh, the chaos from and turn it into peace and these kinds of things. This is one of the, we hold on to the promises, Genesis 3.15, that the serpent will be crushed uh, one day. We have hope. We are a hopeful people. We're an Easter people, if you will. Um, but, you know, there's not a friend like the lonely Jesus. Lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Number two, if we approach Genesis 1 as an explanation of God's interconnected nature, what does that imply? How should that mold and shape our relationships with one another and creation? Um, so, um, if God has created the world and us in a certain way, and we see that it was that the world would be taken care of through us, that we were going to keep and till and work the garden, and that we had helpmates, then that's the image that we should continue on as we, you know, and be people of reconciliation. Like the world will not be reconciled until Jesus comes back ultimately, but we are ambassadors of reconciliation. And we tend and keep the garden where we're at the best we can. And we invite people into fellowship. In some sense, we become the reverses of the curse in our little sphere of influence. At least that's how I understand it. But you're, um, that molds me and shapes me and how I think about how to do my job or whatnot. And then third, how might God's actions in creation encourage us in our endeavors to love and serve the Lord? So, you know, in light of the creation story, how then shall we live? And I think it's like we just said, I think it's that we become tenders of the garden or recreate help in recreating the garden and how we use people and how we use materials and, how we, you know, use that mirror to reflect God's image to others and then reflect our work to God as the image of God back to God in praise or whatnot. I think these are some of the ways that we do this. We live in light of the Sabbath, if you will, that we were created for fellowship and that fellowship was really the most important act after the creation of humanity. Sabbath to be with, with humans were, was the most important event of um of the creation so anyway um that's all i'm going to do today uh, because it's labor day and uh i don't want to get too far behind but um, may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you may the lord turn his face towards you and give you peace amen